Welcome to the New Harvest Podcast. Today's sermon is called Rice and Beans, and the scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 16 through 23. The Bible says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want to start um, with a little parable. Um, and the, uh, is called the monk and the minister. So there were two close boyhood friends who grew up, and then they they went their separate ways. One becomes a humble monk, and the other a rich and powerful minister to the king. Years later, they meet. As they catch up, the portly minister in his fine robes takes pity on the thin and shabby monk. Seeking to help, he says... You know, if you could learn to cater to the king, you wouldn't have to live on rice and beans. To which the monk replied, If you could learn to live on rice and beans, you wouldn't have to cater to the king. Um, So we can kind of see already, right, how this parable relates to our passage today. The minister you see in the story is the slave of sin. Right, who, who looks powerful and rich and comfortable and maybe even a little bit portly, and yet is still very much a slave to the king of the world, Satan. All of his wealth, his fine clothes, his fancy titles can't hide the fact that he's a slave with wealth, fine clothes, and fancy titles. In fact, it's his very wealth that keeps him chained in burdensome servitude to the king, right? Because he has to do all of these things. He has to do whatever the king asks just for the money, just for his wealth, to, to keep what he has. Right? So he runs to this Aaron. He, he runs to, to do all of these things for the king. And then he deceives himself by saying, you know, my work is a privilege, it's an honor to serve the king, it's a, you know, these are big important things that I'm doing. And the monk represents the Christian, the slave to righteousness, the one who appears to be poor and lowly and humble and, and shabby, but he's a slave to no one. He has no wealth, no fine clothes or no fancy titles and important roles. Right? But he does not have much, but he has the one thing that the, the minister lacks, which is freedom. He is truly free. And so when you look at the Christian journey of faith, right, what, what, a, what, a, what 
the, the what a, what a Christian is supposed to go through. It is the journey from minister to monk. That's what that's what every Christian is going through or should go through, right? We we go from being a slave to sin to becoming a slave of righteousness. Right? That's what the, the journey is supposed to be about. And, and so the Bible says, or Paul says here, that we all start out as slaves to sin. In Romans 6, 17 and 18, we'll look at that again. He says, but thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. And when you read those two verses together, that's basically the gospel. Right? So thanks be to God, you used to be slaves to sin. Right? That's where it starts. We, we are the ministers. We were the ministers, slaves to sin, catering to the king. So the, the, the scripture tells us that man's starting point is always sin always slavery and always death, right? Even when we don't want to believe it, right? I think that's why Genesis, the, the book of Genesis, always seems so wrong and confounding to so many Christians, right? Because in Genesis, the, the, the story of mankind moves really rapidly, really quickly towards sin and death. And it feels like it's a mistake, right? Because you expect to hear some good stories, First, right? Like you, you expect to hear like, oh, life was so beautiful in the garden and everything was perfect and great and how good and obedient Adam and Eve were. They did so many good, good, you know, good and wonderful things and they obeyed God completely. And then one day, you know, so and so, you know, this and this happened. And then slowly you see things start to erode and, and things get worse and worse and worse. But it doesn't move like that, right? The, 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 that's not how the story is told. The, the transition is abrupt. Because as soon as Adam and Eve are planted in the garden, they are rooted out by their sin. Cain murders his brother and the whole world just becomes one giant cesspool of sin and death and, and evil and wickedness. And it just happens so fast. Right? And I think that's, on, that's done on purpose because that's what God wants us to focus on. Right? That's the starting point of mankind, is that we are sinful. Right? The Israelites are always slaves somewhere. They're, they're slaves in Egypt, they're captives in Babylon, or they're servants of Rome. It's, never, it's, it's very rare to see them to be a free an independent nation. They're always in trouble. They're always at war with some other nation. They're always losing that war too. And, and the Israelites, they always are rebelling. They're in constant rebellion against God. right? And it's as if they can't really help themselves, as if they have no control over what they do. right? And after Adam, every man is a sinner, and every man... It's under the curse of death. That's what, it's, that's what Paul says in Romans 5, chapters 12 to 14. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account when there was no law. 
Right, and then it says, uh, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Right, so what he's saying is like, even before there was a law, even before there was the Ten Commandments or, you know, don't do this, don't do that, people were sinning and death reigned, ruled over the world from Adam to Moses. Right, even when there were no commandments to break, sin was happening. And I used to think that the Bible was saying to me, don't sin, right? I thought that was the central message of the Bible. Don't sin. Don't commit adultery. Uh, don't commit idolatry. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't do this and that. But I realize now that's not what the Bible is really saying. The Bible is really saying this. It's saying, the Bible is saying, right? Not that the, the Bible is not saying don't sin. The Bible is actually saying you have sinned. Right? The law was not given to us to convince us not to sin. The, the law was given to us to convince us that we are sinners. Romans 3.20, this is what Paul says again. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Right? He's like, the, the law doesn't make people right. The law was not given to teach us that, the, the, the law was not given to teach us how to live. Because that's how we kind of always see it. The, the Bible is uh, a manual for life. It teaches us how to live. Right? But that's not really true. The, the law was not given to teach us how to live. The law was given to teach us that we are dead. In, in Galatians chapter 3, 21 and 22, Paul says this, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. So he, uh, stay there. he basically says, the law cannot impart life. The, the law does not give life. And then 22, but the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul is basically saying that the law cannot give life. And then, the, and then secondly, this was God's purpose of, for the law. The law was given so that scripture would declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Right? Or in, in a different uh, version, it says, the scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Right? That doesn't sound right. The, 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 I thought the, the, the word of God would set you free. But here Paul is saying, no, the, the, the scripture is a thing. The word of God is a thing that locks up everything under the control of sin. Right? And, and the reason why it does that is so that salvation would only come through Jesus Christ and those who believe in him. So Jesus Christ was the only one who is righteous in God's sight. Jesus Christ is the only one who fully obeyed the law. And so Jesus Christ is the only one that can make us righteous. Right, And so that's what Paul means when he says uh, a righteousness apart from the law or, or when we say stuff like righteousness by faith is that I can't be declared righteous by following the law 
So I can only be righteous by believing that Jesus Christ fulfilled and totally obeyed the law for me. Right? And so this is what I'm saying is God knows you can't do it. You can't be righteous. The law is telling you that you can't do it. But we still believe that we can do it. That's the problem, right? We still believe that we can be good. I can do it. I can be a righteous person. I am not, and, and, and we refuse to believe that we are a prisoner of sin. We refuse to believe that we are a slave, right? Like, look at all these great things that I'm, you know, doing in my life. Look at my wealth, my clothes, or my accomplishments, you know, how well I study, or, you know, all of these things. And, and we say, look, I'm not a bad person. I mean, I, I sin sometimes, but I'm not a prisoner of sin. I'm not dead in my sin. I'm not a slave to sin. I do good things on my own. I come to church on my own. I do this on my own. And because we cannot trust what the Bible says about us, we cannot trust what the Bible says about Jesus either. right? And so what happens is we end up like the, like the church of Laodicea. Right. In Revelation 3.15, this is what Jesus says to, to that church. He, said, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are poor, pitiful, uh, Blind and, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you could become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Right? So how many of you are like that? How many of you are lukewarm in your faith? Neither hot or cold, neither believing or not believing. And, and you might you probably won't say, I'm rich, but you might say something like, I'm fine. I'm good. My life is fine. I'm all right. And I do not need a thing. Right? And so our visible outer condition blinds us to the fact of this darker, more desperate inner spiritual reality. Right? We don't understand how wretched we are, how pitiful we are, how poor and blind we are, how naked we are, because we say, oh, you know, I got money, I live in a nice house, I go, I like, I go to a nice school, I do these things. And so we say in our hearts, we say in our minds, I don't need a thing, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine. And then we neglect right, the heavenly gifts. The gold, the heavenly clothes, the heavenly medicine, which is Christ. And so even though we're physically rich, maybe, or we have material things, we're not truly rich. We're not truly clothed. We're not truly healed. Right? And, and it's kind of like we, God keeps saying you have cancer, and we're just like, no, it's just a headache. I just need some Tylenol. And let's be honest, right? Most of us don't feel like we need God in our lives. We don't feel this like burning, intense desire or this great need for God. We rarely feel like that unless it's an emergency, unless something really bad happens, unless there's some sort of tragedy in our lives. 
And when you don't feel like you, you and, and so when you don't feel like you need God, that's probably when you need God the most. Right? I, I want us to kind of um, take a look at the uh, Rabbi Zacharias scandal. We talked about it last week, but I'm going to kind of look at it again. Because when you think about it, that's precisely what happened to him too. Rabbi Zacharias probably felt like, I don't really need God. I mean, I love God. You know, I worship Him and I do all these things, but I don't really need God in my life because I know God. I have salvation. I know the scriptures probably better than, you know, most people. And look, I'm doing all of this holy work, this holy service for God. Of course I know God. And so he didn't really feel that urgent need for God. He didn't feel wretched. He didn't feel blind and poor and naked. He felt fine. And so someone pointed out this about that situation. He says, apologists have a tendency a fatal tendency in my observation. They're not churchmen by and large. They're often on the fringes, often away from fellowship, often aloof. Apologists then use these excuses, right, of like, oh, I'm always traveling, I'm always on the road, I'm always by myself, to be outside of preaching, outside of the teaching of the whole counsel of God, outside of the oversight of the elders outside of the church, right? And so because Reverend Zacharias was traveling the world, doing the work of God, being the man, he was always alone. He was separated from the fellowship of the church. There was no one to like oversee him, check up on him, see how he's doing or rebuke him. And I know like, you know, um, most of us are not going are not going to be, you know, implicated in a sexual abuse scandal, but I realize that that's the reality for many Christians. They go to church, but they don't really feel like they belong at the church, right? No one really knows them. They don't really have friends, right? That's one of the things that would always kind of break my heart when, you know, I would be I was there, you know doing youth group, and then and the kids would say. You know, somebody, their friends would call them right on the phone or whatever, and they're like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm with my church friends, meaning they're not my real friends, right? I just happen to just go to the same church with them, so I have to hang out with them. Right? And so I realized that's what happens to so many Christians nowadays is they're always on the fringes. They're always on the edges, the margins of church. They're aloof, right? They are... You know, separated from real meaningful connection or intimacy with other Christians, other believers. Because we don't want to get too close to people at church. Because church people are nosy. They're going to tell me what to do. They're going to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. They're going to make me feel guilty for not doing Bible study. They're going to make me feel guilty for not doing this and that. And if I get close to people, then I actually have to change. I have to have to face my sins, you know, like as if like I was a real Christian or something, right? And I realized that the truth is many Christians like being slaves to sin. They enjoy it. They are comfortable with it. 
right? Because it says here in verse 20, Romans 6, 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Rabbi Zacharias, even though he was a Christian and, and doing all of this big, important work for God, he was still free from the control of righteousness. And I see a lot of Christians today, the same thing. They're Christian and they know all the Christian creeds or doctrines. They know, you know, about righteousness and salvation, all of that. But they're still free from the control of righteousness. Righteousness doesn't have a hold in their life. And so, which is an implication, you're still a slave to sin. Right? Even though we keep saying that Jesus will set you free, we're still a slave to sin. Right? Sin is still reigning in your life. I'm not saying you can't ever make sin, you know, sin or you know, make mistakes, but sin is reigning in your you you have you're free. You're totally separated from the control of righteousness. So that's what he was doing, right? He was still catering to his king. He didn't let righteousness reign, or he didn't become a slave of righteousness. And so, you know, this is kind of what I want to ask you, or ask of you. You know, don't be a Christian. Become a church. Because I think there's a difference. Be united in the faith. Encourage each other to, you know, live a spiritual life. Live the Christian life together. Rebuke one another. And be willing to be rebuked by others. I think that's the problem with the church, is that we're not a church. We're just a whole bunch of Christians. We're a whole bunch of just stray Christians just running around. We're not a church. And that's what's really causing a lot of the problems. No unity. Right? And so Lent, what we're we're in the Lent season. Lent, like much of the Christian life, is not something that you do by yourself. It's not something that you do alone. It's something that you do with the church, with your brothers and sisters. It's something that you do with Christ. Right? It's when you recognize and you face your sin, which is nothing more than your need of Him. Right? I'm not asking you to, you know, name out and list out all of your sins and all the bad things you've done. You know, like, you know, but it's, re- it's just truly recognizing, as, as you just read about in Revelations, your need for Him and believing that, right? That you are wretched and poor, just as the Bible says, right? Lent is a time where you free yourself from the world. It's learning to live on beans and rice. Uh, it says here, um, this is what, uh, within the Catholic tradition, this is like a little quote that I saw about Lent. The grace of abstinence has shone forth, banishing the darkness of demons. The power of the fast disciplines our minds. Lent brings us the cure for our crippling worldliness. Right? 
So the, 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 in, the, in our parable today, the, the minister thought that the monk was the one who was weak and poor because of his you know, shabby appearance, because of the way that he looked. And I think that's how a lot of Christians see the, the Christian life, the, the, the life of righteousness. Right? The, the Christian life looks so hard and painful and pathetic compared to the comfortable life of sin to the comfortable life of worldliness. And we say, you know, if you just learn to cater to the king, right, you wouldn't have to live on rice and beans. But the Apostle Paul says this to us, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And so a lot of times things look good. Like being worldly and living in sin and living like everyone else feels good and comfortable. But no matter how comfortable and nice they are, it always leads in death. It always leads to slavery, to sin. A slavery of our senses, of our desires, and, and we're unable to do the right thing. And so grace is kind of like rice and beans, I think. right? It looks... Insufficient. It looks insubstantial. We're like, oh, no thanks. When we see it, we don't really want it. Because it looks too lowly, too meager. Grace doesn't look like it will really satisfy us and satisfy our hunger or give us the strength that we need to do what we need to do. Right? But Lent is the art of learning how to live on rice and beans, learning how to live on grace alone. Because we must learn how to live on rice and beans, and then we won't have to cater to the king. right? If we learn to live on grace alone, then we'll no longer be slaves to sin. We'll be free. And that's what I hope for you guys, um, you know, to not think of Lent as some sort of punishment or like, an obligation that you have to do, but this is the way you learn how to live by grace alone. This is the way you learn to free yourself from your sinful nature, free yourself from your sinful urges, and to become the person that Christ died for you to be. Uh, so let us pray. Um, dear Lord, as we come before you, Father God, you know, you died so that we could have eternal life. And there is no eternal life without righteousness. And so you die so that we can be righteous. So I would just pray for all of us that will be willing to learn how to live on rice and beans. That will be willing to learn how to live on grace alone. So that we may crucify the flesh and its desires. And that we may learn to live according to the Spirit. We may learn to live uh, according to the righteous um to the righteousness of God, and we can become more and more like you during this Lent season. So just be with us and help us. Give us the right heart, the right desire, and lead us to be closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.